Bangalore within India thrives as they call it the Silicon Valley of India. And that's because they have lots of cutting edge global tech leaders as well as local startups. And you can see this within the city skyline that reflects the diversity within tech and entrepreneurship. And not only do they have the technical side, they also are one of the world's leading exporters of parts for tech. So that makes the city tech. That's Raisa Bray telling us why Bangalore is one of our cities to watch in 2024. The other two cities that you'll hear about in this episode are Manila in the Philippines and Portland, Maine in the US. Welcome to the Create Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Bethan Ryder, Editorial Director at WGSN. We're here today to discuss some of the highlights from one of our most popular pieces of content for our clients, and that's the cities to watch in the coming year ahead. Travel is always such a great source of creative inspiration, and with me to discuss some of the cities we think you ought to put on your bucket list for 2024 are Natasha Lim, who's from our research hub and based in Singapore, Raisa Bray, a researcher based in London, and we also have Cassandra Gagnon, interior strategist over in Portland, Maine, on the east coast of the US. If you didn't catch last year's Cities to Watch podcast, let me explain the purpose of this content. Cities to Watch is our pick of the most inspirational destinations for our clients, who are predominantly designers and buyers in fashion, interiors, and all the other products that we serve. These reports inform them of the most exciting retail, hospitality, art, and cultural hotspots, and where they can find ideas and innovations to fuel their creativity. To kick off then, I really wanted to ask, when you compile this annual Cities to Watch report... Was there anything that really struck you this year about some of our macro trends that we're forecasting more generally? I know last year we talked a lot about the digital nomad trend. So how is that evolving, Natasha? So the digital nomad trend has now become embedded into how lots of people plan their travel and work time. Because hybrid working has become part of everyday life, work-life boundaries are starting to blur as well, and many workers are able to combine a longer stay with work. And so what we're seeing really is things like digital nomad communities sprouting up, such as Europe's first digital nomad village in Madeira. And South Korea this year as well has started issuing a digital nomad visa. I think they just launched it on 1st January of the year. So great things ahead. Those destinations are ones for digital nomads to put down. I know that I was in Bali in October and there was such a huge community of people that were traveling around and picking according to the climate really where they were going to go next and things. And then in terms of just choosing the cities, right? So I know you've worked across this report a few years running now. What's your criteria? How do you come up? I know there's six in the report. We're going to talk about three today. But what's uh, what makes you decide? So we look at a balance spread across all regions. We cover APAC, EMEA and the Americas. And this year, we have chosen six, but in this podcast, we're speaking about three, which includes Portland, Bangalore, and Manila. And these cities, we measure the creativity within the space for our clients to visit. We look, are they cultural hubs? What is the creativity innovation that these cities are brewing? And we also look, is it fresh and relevant for 2024? And some of these cities are establishing themselves and others are experiencing a renaissance, which is always great to see as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Right. I think we should dive in without much further ado. So first up, I want to hear about Manila, the capital of the Philippines. Why this city, Natasha? How does it stand out in 2024? The thing that stood out to me most was how tight-knit and well-connected the creative scene has become. 
So there's lots of cross-collaboration between different creative industries. So there's fashion, music, art. And what this has done is it's created a really robust and resilient subculture. So these communities are effectively creative enclaves. So for instance, I have a friend who lives in this apartment building. And over the last two years, like five, six other friends moved in. And they're all from the creative industry. And this has led to this constant stream of creative projects and events just coming up from this group of people who are living in this building. So for instance, they're making a film about people who live in the same building. Some of them are fashion designers. There are lots of pop-up events. And that's been really exciting to see. That sounds really fertile ground for kind of creativity. And I wonder, is that, how is the cost of living affecting that part of the world? Do you think it's driving some of this creativity? So there's a shrinking culture of traditional physical retail because of the rising cost of living. And so young fashion designers obviously have to come up with new methods to sell their products, right? So the strong DIY spirit is kind of running through a lot of the youth and it's creating a lot of innovative retail formats such as private studios and homes used as retail showrooms such as the apartment building that I mentioned. There are also a lot more pop-ups as opposed to like traditional brick and mortar stores and what that means is that there's a lot greater variety in terms of shops coming together and they've become like places of community as well and so kind of like the retail scene is also very tight-knit at the moment. Another thing that's popped up obviously is the rise of one-to-one appointments and customization services when it comes to fashion in particular. One more thing I really want to talk about really is how um, high cost of living has kind of transformed the cultural and music scene over the past two or three years. So obviously, um, with the pandemic and high cost of living, lots of people were pushed out of Manila. And so they sought other spaces. There was this whole process of rural revitalization. And it's now feeding back into the capital because the people are moving back in. So one great example is rave collectives. So they kind of moved out, they had parties in the mountains, and they brought back um, this kind of grassroots urban EDM called Budots. Uh, They brought it back in to Manila during Boiler Room last year. And then this year, and late last year, it kind of started making a regional presence as well. And so that's really kind of interesting in the way uh, Manila can become a door for a lot of the other cities to bring their culture and spotlight it on a global stage. What you described sounds almost like I'm thinking East Berlin after the wall went down. It feels like, you know, people partying and and sort of raves and uh, all this kind of thing. I wonder, we've got a lot of fashion listeners. How is this seeping through into fashion and are things very like lo-fi aesthetics or what are the sort of things that people would see if they were going there for inspiration here? So that's a fun one because there are really three big strands of aesthetics running through Philippines right now, I would say. So one of them is Filipino maximalism. It's really absurd. It's really loud. And it's happening across all design spheres from fashion to even graphic design. So I would spotlight labels like Salad Day. It's kind of like this maximalist conceptual label. It's almost costumey. Hamu does similar things with abstract shapes and kind of very interesting materials. There's also a revitalization of tradition going on. So labels like Chat Studio, they interpret traditional Filipino wear in kind of contemporary silhouettes, but with the use of traditional embroidery as well and there's also labels that kind of pay tribute to history so Joss Bundo for instance they use local artisans and local materials to make their shoe wear or their apparel line and it's kind of an ode to Marikina which is 
kind of a district in Manila that used to be described as the shoe city. So that's that was really interesting. I learned that on my last trip there. And finally, uh, tropical aesthetics, of course, because Philippines is essentially an archipelago made out of 7,000 islands, 7,600 islands. And so labels like Toka really gesture towards tropical aesthetics. And I think that's an interesting one because there's kind of a set global idea of what tropical aesthetics look like. It's like palm prints and birds or things like that. But what the tropics mean is very different in Southeast Asia. And I think as Manila or as Southeast Asia starts to define what the aesthetic means for themselves, it will really kind of transform the way the tropical aesthetic is interpreted like in the world as well. And then in terms of the city, you sort of described a very cool scene, but I wonder, is there a particular neighbourhood that where it really is the cool zone in Manila? If I had to pick one, I would maybe pick Publishon. It's a place to go where a lot of creatives hang out. Some of the labels that I mentioned are located there. There are lots of good like bars and innovative F&B places. The apartment building I mentioned where my friends congregate is there as well. And there are a few walking highlights. You have the Elliott Caravan. It's like a repurposed warehouse. You've got Cubal Expo or Big Lab, which are adaptive incubator spaces. You'll see a lot of these sort of like repurposed venues used as like creative hubs. And then a final question on local crafts, because that's something I always like to look at being a bit of an interiors fan. What's notable across clothing or fashion or interiors for Manila that you'd really say, make a note to check this out? So I would say like whether you're looking at traditional or contemporary wear, clothes making and shoemaking is a standout. Lots of things are handmade, hand-sewn. You've got a lot of hand-sewn apparel, you've got embroidery, you've got a lot of traditional weaving techniques. And this all kind of pays tribute to kind of the craftsmanship that's been in the city for the past many, many, many years. Thank you, Natasha. That was great. So let's move on to another city. We have Bangalore on our list this year. Raisa, tell me about this city. Now, from what I understand, it sounds quite different from Manila. It's more of a kind of tech hub, right? Bangalore within India thrives as they call it the Silicon Valley of India. And that's because they have lots of cutting edge global tech leaders, as well as local startups. You can see this within the city skyline that reflects um, the diversity within tech and entrepreneurship. Not only do they have the technical side, they also are one of the world's leading exporters of parts for tech. So that makes the city tech. So is there um, a lot of support for people that are working so hard in the tech sector? What's the sort of work-life balance like, would you say, in Bangalore? Yes, completely. It's definitely becoming a space that people can find the balance of work and lifestyles. So within India, with its heritage, is obviously lots of yoga practices and you have these boutique studios that are always linked to some sort of cafe where people can have that work-life balance. And just in terms of the rest of the country, which is usually super hot or humid, Bangalore itself has a very favorable climate for people coming from all over the world. It has an average of about 20 to 30 degrees, um, which is relatively low in India. And it's a very comfortable place to work and live all year round. So that really does define it from the rest of the country. I'd like to just mention Yogistan within um, Bangalore as a place where you can practice yoga and have Ayurvedic um, meals, which is obviously tied into the cultural identity of India. 
So beyond tech, what other things can people visit in Bangalore? And, and what would you say makes it such an innovative city, Raisa? So within Bangalore, there are multiple kind of what Natasia mentioned of there's not one specific neighborhood you should like run to. But I want to mention a few that perhaps would lend itself to our fashion listeners. Um, I would like to highlight Sampagni Rama Nagar, where they have this one um, local designer called Tarun Tahiliani, where the his store is in a historic building. So it's a refurbished house. And his entire practice is to have affordable luxury that really focuses on the Indian craft of embroidery, of metalwork with iron fabrics. And when you visit, there's menswear, there's women's wear, and of course, it's always the occasional bridal wear. So I'd recommend that um, neighborhood as well as a Sivancheti garden area where you can see cinnamon, which is a destination for lifestyle products, as well as a cafe and apparel. And one other space within the other side of the city is Laval Road, where we could highlight Good Earth, which focuses on luxury homeware. Fantastic. I like the name of that, Good Earth. It sounds like the sustainability aspects are really embedded in this city, which is exciting. I feel like sustainability is just embedded within the culture in India. It, uh, it's just how people have always lived and also ties in within the food space where most people are plant-based and you can also tie it into Ayurvedic practices. Moving on to that, how would you actually define the food scene? I've only actually ever been to Kerala and the food was amazing. So I always just think of incredible food when I think of going to India. But how would you define it? What are the sort of pioneers leading maybe different things or or is there a return to heritage there? What, what's happening? Yes, I think just a very common thread is just a return to heritage. And I'm sure as most listeners will be aware of how layered Indian flavors are. It's not just one, it's just complex with all the use of spices. And this really does come through even from the wellness cafes to the more traditional spaces. Within food and drink, I'd like to mention farm law, which is nestled in like a mango grove. And they do this, the classic farm to table space with a theatrical fine dining element to it. And with the younger market in the workforce, there will always be some sort of brewery revival. And we, there's one called Windmills, which focuses on jazz music, set the ambiance, which is slightly different to a traditional Indian space. But they also focus on sustainability in terms of how they function as a whole. And I'd also like to mention when it comes to coffee, as I hinted at before, there's a outlet called Maverick and Farmer, which is one of India's few cup to coffee brands. And they actually have a roastery based in Bangalore. And they're known for their signature blends that include like a cinnamon almond coffee, as well as a cold smoke coffee and clarified cappuccino. So it's really interesting to see that India has its own coffee culture brewing and that extends beyond the traditional teas that come from the area there's obviously a huge market behind that. So it'll be interesting for our listeners to taste the difference from India's brew compared to the rest of the world. You're listening to the WGSN Create Tomorrow podcast. And in this episode, we're globetrotting around the world and we're revealing three of our cities to watch in 2024. If you're a designer or just a creative or a buyer even, these are the cities you need to put on your travel list. Next, we hear from Cassandra Gagnon, a strategist for interiors based in Portland, Maine. And that's her city to watch. So I asked her, why is this city deserving of the list? 
it's not a secret, you know, it is not one of those like small cities or like towns that as we're talking about it, especially like locals, people are like, oh, no, like, don't let that one leak out. You know, like Portland has really for a very long time been a cultural hub and center of Maine. I think one part of that is due to the proximity to a lot of other places. So it's only a two hour drive north of Boston and only like an hour by flight from New York. So as far as like people discovering Maine and that type of coastal living goes, I kind of describe Portland as like the entry point, the taste of Maine for people who are usually visiting the first time. Even uh, when I was living in New York still, uh, if I referenced being from Maine originally, a lot of times people's reference points will either be Acadia National Park up in Bar Harbor or it will be Portland. So I think it's been a long time coming for Portland to kind of get like the accolades that it's deserved. And now it's gotten to a point where there's just a lot of exciting new things going on where there is a very clear meeting of both the old historical port city element of it and a lot of uh, native manors and a lot of like historical context. But there's all this freshness coming in from people kind of like really embracing, I wouldn't even say discovering the beauty of Portland because again, it's been quite like commonly known, but almost having more of like with the ability to work remote or uh, relocate and a lot of people kind of going north up from places like New York and Massachusetts, kind of actually having the ability to come and see what it's really about. So there's like a revitalization of some of the creative scenes as well as that historical context, which just makes a really beautiful mix. So it's really about that city migration that's happened in the States and pandemic, which we've read about lots like people, a lot of people going to places like Florida and leaving San Francisco. And that's really sort of driven this sort of revitalization. I'd love to hear, because when I think about like, I know it's sort of up and come now, but when I think about cool cities in America, I'm always like, but what's, what's the typical Portland, Maine cool person like? Because if I think (laughs) of Austin, Texas, right, I think of like, music and things like that. So if you were going to think about a cool Portlander, what would you, how would you describe them? Yeah, I would say there's definitely two very distinct kind of like industries when it comes to Portland and a lot of that newness. And the biggest ways I see it in is like art and then in like food and drink. So those are really like the two biggest that are have seen an influx from like we call it being from away. Um, so there's being from Maine and there's being from away. So being from away, <laughs> it is a lot of artistry and then it's a lot of the food and drink as well. But what I found really interesting as well is that there's a reverence for the history of Maine and Portland that even those who are coming from away are uh, really leaning into and incorporating in their work as well. And there's a lot of people who are actually almost like kind of what I did. I mean, I grew up like 45 minutes south of Portland. I went to New York for the better part of a decade, and now I'm back 45 minutes north of Portland. So there's also a lot of coming back to the area as well that I've seen. People who may have grown up there or even grown up vacationing there who are just really coming back and embracing it and bringing what they found and what they learned and the perspectives they had elsewhere and reconnecting it to those Portland roots. Like one exciting, fairly new restaurant is 12, uh, and it's named after the fact that the executive chef there returned to Portland after 12 years and was at 11 11 Madison Park in New York before, like a very, you know, renowned restaurant. So there's great things like that happening. And we're even seeing Portland kind of become 
sometimes like the trend setter uh, as well as like, you know, being on top of the trends as well. One thing that I found really interesting is there's a local artist, Anastasia Inciardi. And recently uh, there's been a series of these pop up vending machines for art prints. And the first one was at Soleil in Portland, Maine. And now not only have they popped up at retail locations in New York and Denver, but there's one at the Whitney Museum right now. So it's like there really is that renaissance where there's such a respect for the past, um, you know, still tying into there's a lot of like seafood forward uh, restaurants being established. There's New England IPAs are, you know, such a well-known part of beer. So like a lot of revitalization of that. One of my favorite breweries is Bellflower. It's a woman-run brewery. And as a non-IPA lover, they offer a lot of sour beers, which is my favorite. So, you know, even just having that newness in that sector where we're embracing, yes, we are like a brewing city, but we can bring in some of those newer elements as well. So talking about other places on the East Coast, which I think are more famous, perhaps, does it have that kind of lovely feel? Is the architecture like the clapperboard houses? What's Can you describe it a little bit? Is it, is it in that vein? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it truly is like to me, like the epitome of like a historic New England port city. Um, Even the like main drag of Congress Street, which is really at the heart of our art districts, it's cobblestone. Like it's all brick and cobblestone. There's the old port, which is just like the most like beautiful part of one of the neighborhoods all along the water where all the ships are, all of the old docks. Everything is still wood and brick and cobblestone and just really historic in that sense. And even our West End is really where you can see that with a lot of the buildings. There's even an old, like, uh, it's called the Victoria Mansion. There's larger historic uh, homes like that that are just, like, places for tourism at this point. So it's truly just, it's gorgeous. (laughs) You talked about art, you talked about food and drink. So can we just run through, is there a sort of neighbourhood where you discover the the young artists? Can they afford to live in the middle of Portland? I don't know how affluent the city is, but I know that artists generally need somewhere cheap to live often. What's the kind of neighbourhood for art? Yeah, I will say, I think it is one important thing to know about Portland and a lot of these smaller cities is that as amazing as it is to see a lot of that like renaissance and that influx, there's obviously like a double edged sword to any of those types of uh, growth. It almost like it will hit a breaking point of growth. There is definitely an affordable housing crisis in Portland right now that's affecting both people trying to relocate there and the people already there. So there's definitely, you know, I don't want to like sugarcoat the concept of, you know, that newness coming in. But there's definitely a lot of more studio space and open studios when it comes to some of those smaller artists. And while some of that is in the art district, I'd say a lot of the more up and coming and young scene, whether it is food and drink, whether it is art, can be in the uh, East Bayside neighborhood. And that's over on the east heading towards um, the east end, which is where one of the longer like promenades are along the water. It's also... One thing I like to point out about Portland is like when I'm trying to say like it's not a secret in Maine, it's the one place in Maine that has a Trader Joe's. So like it is an established place in Maine, you know. (laughs) So it's uh, I would definitely say East Bayside. Uh, A lot of the times if you're talking to especially younger people about like where they've like relocated to, like when they're first coming into Maine, especially, I feel like it's definitely kind of like the more uh, I would say like Brooklyn-y type of neighborhood of Portland, for lack of better terms. But it's truly 
throughout the entire city. Again, that main drag of the art district is more of where like the galleries and whatnot are, but I would say East Bayside for some of the smaller artists. And then if you also go off Peninsula, there's a venue called Thompson's Point. And uh, during the summer, they host a concert series, which, I mean, this past summer had artists like Maggie Rogers perform, like, again, really up and coming as far as like some buzzier names. But one amazing thing they do during the winter is a series of makers markets. And it's a bunch of local artists doing these different pop ups. So a lot of like pop up markets and those types of they'll have neighborhood block parties where they have different vendors. Any of those vendor markets are especially where you will see a lot of artists uh, showing their wares if they don't have like an established uh, retail distributor yet. To wrap up, thank you everyone for all your information about these fabulous destinations. I just wanted to ask each of you if you were suggesting or wanted to yourself bring back a souvenir from this city, what would it be? And I'm going to come to Natasha first. So what would you bring back from Manila? I wanted to say like something about, you know, their creative spirit. I want to bring home back to the art scene. But if I'm honest, I want another pair of like Joss Mundo shoes. They'll be, they'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) Are they flats? High shoes? Can you describe the shoes? They're like, they're like tiny wedges. Kiko Mitsuhara has one of them. There's like little shells on them. They're made of leather from Marikina. (laughs) Beautiful. Raisa, what about you? I would love to go to Good Earth and get a beautiful platter that's made of silver. So I'm really into silverware at the moment. And it's just, it's very intricate with like floral details around it. And I feel like it'll be a nice statement piece to last a lifetime. Quite heavy to put in your luggage, but that sounds absolutely beautiful. Worth it. (laughs) Cassandra, it's a bit different for you because you live nearby, but what have you already got? Or what would you want to buy from Portland? I have to say, since I do live so close by and I can kind of take that into consideration, I would love to just grab a big old bag of oysters right from the old port and a natural bottle of sparkling to go with it. (laughs) Oh, that sounds absolutely wonderful. I think I'm booking a flight to come and see you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you to Cassandra, Raisa and Natasha. And thank you for listening. If you're a WGSN subscriber, you'll find many city guides on our City by City section of the site. And if you want to find out how to subscribe, head over to WGSN.com to discover how you can get access to our service. We're constantly publishing new content focusing on how we can design a brighter, better future for all of our industries. And these now include food and drink, interiors, beauty, fashion and consumer tech. We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode. And in the meantime, why not catch the CEO of WGSN, Carly Buzashi, next week on our other podcast, Lives of Tomorrow.